You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Disney presents the Black Cauldron of Notre Dame. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas, and I am very, very boring, and it's just not not good. Here we sell the show. Um, and I am Thomas Mariani. Here, uh, I am the result of several different studio notes from Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg. I'm a terrible <laughs> mess, basically. Uh, but, Adam, uh, we're not the only people here. In fact, you're not the only Adam here in this room, which is a shock. Yeah, I don't The like... first time in about 150 episodes, we have a second Adam <laughs> on the show. Um, he is the co-host of a few podcasts, including the Zillennial Canon podcast. He is Mr. Adam Serdorius. Adam, welcome. Thank you, man. I'm, it's an honor to be on here. I kind of went down a binger of your pod this past week, so now it's kind of almost surreal being a guest on here. Uh, you're a bit starstruck. Well, this happens a lot. We get it all the time <laughs> for all our dozens of listeners that show up on the show eventually. Oh, yeah. Constantly. I get, I get literally tens of emails a month. <laughs> 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 um, and I also want to say this one feels very fitting because these two movies, I feel like, because on our, my other podcast, Zillino Canon, we try to cover like mid 2000s movies. And neither of these quite fit that range, but they're both movies that I always want to talk about when it comes to like, I don't know, the weirdness of the productions and everything. So I'm very excited to get into it. Yeah, I'm very curious because we definitely have a varying age ranges here. Because uh, I know Adam would be considered, I believe, an older millennial. I'm a younger millennial. You're one of those millennial kids. The kids on the TikToks that are going to save us, right? You're going to save us? Save us? Uh, Please save us. You yeah. know what? I'm trying my darndest. <laughs> one man crusade. Um, but by the way, for the sake of the show, um, given, once again, the first time we've ever had a second Adam, we're going to be referring to our guest as Adam 2, which was your suggestion. Yeah, not that's not something they like uh, bestowed upon me upon entering the call. Like they were, I consulted with them beforehand. I'm like, hey, look, my uh, my supervisor at work is named Adam. And that's what they just called me around work. So I'm just used to it. I'm used to being in second place in life. I wanted to be called your majesty, but no, fuck me, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's true. You're just the OG Adam, the original. Not to be duplicated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we're here to talk about um, something we've discussed before on the show in terms of a Disney films. It's kind of unavoidable to some extent to talk about Disney if you're talking about movies on a podcast at this point. But we're specifically going to be talking about two films from the Walt Disney Animated Features canon uh, because uh, we are recording this around the time that Rhea 
and The Last Dragon is out, uh, which is currently on Disney Plus with the uh, premiere access thing. And uh, Adam, too, I believe you actually watched it, right? Yes, I um, I randomly went to a 8.45 showing last night in a completely empty theater, just like on a whim. Not to go into like a giant review of it, but I loved it. It's the best Disney movie I've seen, oh, I want to say since like Big Hero 6, maybe? That's high praise. I'm excited to see it, man. It looks really fun. It looks interesting. It's got a really cool cultural aspect to it that I'm completely unaware of. And that's always what makes those exciting. Uh, I'm a big fan of games like Tomb Raider and Uncharted and stuff like that. And I can honestly say this movie does like Tomb Raider more justice than any of the Tomb Raider adaptations ever have. Uh, it's it's a great adventure movie, great action movie, but also has a lot to say about unity and people and trust. And it, it's just it's a beautiful movie. So before we talk about like a good classic and a bad just trip down memory lane, definitely see Ryan and the Lost Dragon because it, it's really, really great. Well, I, I definitely will, though. I don't. Is it worth the $30 premiere access is the question. Well, okay, so I went to a kind of rundown theater here where I only paid $7 to see it on the big screen. So I would say it's worth seeing it for $7 if you're in a safe location with no money in it. I don't know if any movie is really worth $30. Oh, no, um, no, not if you don't own it. It's going to be free for everybody like June 2nd. I'm pretty anti-Disney Premiere Access. I'm not anti-streaming per se, but anti $30 on top of an already subscription-based services. Very strange to me, so I can't quite recommend that. But however you choose you want to see the movie, I highly recommend someone, to, everyone to go see the movie because it's it's just really damn good. Right, and I assume especially if you're going to a theater, see it safely, like I'm sure Adam too did. Yeah, you know, I masked up. I saw, like I said, that I was the only one in the theater last night. So... Yeah, very safe, about as safe as you could be. Uh, so, clearly you're a big fan of the Walt Disney stuff in general, and that's, I'm guessing, why you decided to come on for our animated features canon. So, given you're younger, I guess, what was sort of more of your entry point for that? I think kind of the story of how I got into film in general at a young age was my grandpa. He used to, every Friday, he would go to, like, the local pawn shop, and he would buy me, like two or three VHS tapes of Disney movies, just randomly. He didn't even know if I already had them. He would just buy them. So I think the first ones he ever bought me was like Toy Story. Uh, and this was before Toy Story 2 came out. So he bought me Toy Story, Lion King, and Little Mermaid. Those were the first three I ever owned. I just kind of watched them on repeat. And it got to the point where the VHS tape just kind of like got tired and burnt out. <laughs> we had to go buy new copies. So yeah, those were like my three core ones, but I think the Toy Story franchise as a whole too. Like even deeper than just Toy Story 1 and 2, like the Buzz Lightyear animated series, mm-hmm. um, uh, Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. Like, so I had a Buzz Lightyear themed room when I was a kid. Um, you were just Andy? Yeah, I was literally Andy. Like, <laughs> I, I literally like, wrote Adam at the bottom of their feet like Andy did in the movie. Like I like my toys. Like I, I my childhood with disney goes so incredibly deep i I guess i have a similar thing in terms of like i remember the clamshell vhs's and especially with sort of the the main focus of today being the animated features canon which if you don't know listeners is basically any of the movies produced by their official studio ranging from snow white to ray and the last dragon as of recent um so it's a total of what it's 59 right is ray and the last dragon it's the 59th film that they've done yes yes that is correct oh yes yes i actually did a ranking on letterbox today and i was 
surprised at how many I've actually seen. Like, some of them I forgot were. Like, I know you watched it recently, I think, right, Thomas? Uh, Home on the Range? Like, I it wasn't until I went on the Wikipedia page, and I just was like, oh, that movie exists, doesn't it? Yeah, that was one of the only two I hadn't seen, yeah, was that and one of the subjects for today. Because um, I avoided them for obvious reasons, um, which we'll, we'll get into, especially with the other one. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's weird, especially how sort of you can track really literally the history of animation through that entire spectrum of movies going from the first feature length one of Snow White all the way through like the rise and fall of like digital animation, even like with combining with 2D um, and then eventually getting to 3D animation and all this other stuff. There's It's an interesting history you can go through for sure with that. And I'm assuming, Adam, about what you watched Snow White in the theater when it came out originally, right? That's, that's how you discovered all this? watch it i was the operator of the camera um <laughs> one of the nine old men is here ladies and gentlemen yep when i was younger when i was a, just a tyke uh disney's robin hood and sword in the stone were my favorites i absolutely loved them i still love robin hood to this day because of prince john but the first one that i saw in the theater that i still have cognizant memory of that blew my fucking mind was little mermaid and Ever since then, I mean, you got to figure what a stellar couple of years. So, I mean, actually, still continuing for the most part, except like Home on the Range and Brother Bear and things like that. But yeah, Little Mermaid was probably the first one where I was like, "Oh, this is a Disney movie." Yeah, I'm absolutely in love with the the Disney canon films. I think I think they're phenomenal. I mean, some of my favorite movies of the last couple of years have been Disney animated films uh, like Moana and Princess of the Frog and things. That I, I just think they're just fantastic, fantastic films. And, and for the most part, they produce just masterpieces. Yes. For the most part they do. Um, and it's interesting. You mentioned like the little mermaid, cause that sort of kicks off the Disney Renaissance, which we're covering two films. I would argue kind of bookend that period. Yes. Because we're going to be talking about uh, two movies, if you don't know uh, the format, folks. Uh, at the end of every episode, we pick a good and a bad feature based uh, randomly on a couple choices that Adam and I have. And uh, for the bad pick, we had one that Adam, as well as our patrons over at patreon.com slash dedbpod, chose of uh, The Black Cauldron, which was in 1985 and was sort of like the low point for Disney at a certain point before the Renaissance happened. And then we'll be talking about my good pick, which was The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I would argue kind of ends that renaissance period though some argue that's maybe tarzan or some other things if anything it's near the end maybe the beginning of the end of that if nothing else i agree yeah I yes. agree with that. uh but let's uh, go ahead and jump into the black cauldron legend has it there was once a king so cruel and so evil that the gods feared him since no prison could hold him he was trapped forever in the form of a great black cauldron. Escape into a world of darkness. Are you coming? Oh, no, no, no. It's a terrible place. Soon the black cauldron will be mine. In the great tradition of Disney animated classics, now comes the newest Disney spectacle of them all, the black cauldron the black cauldron came out july 26 1985 as we mentioned was sort of like a a, a really infamous disaster quite frankly for disney because uh this is I'll, I'll be as brief as i possibly can though adam too can agree that like, there is a wealth of information about sort of this post walt disney dying period of disney 
um, leading into the Renaissance, uh, where it's just like all the weird sort of stuff of like people desperately trying to cling on to like what would Walt would have done? How can we kind of do that? Like Ron Miller was the lead of the studio at the time. It's crazy in terms of like how weird the whole history of this particular period is for Disney. Yeah, I was kind of uh, I can't remember what specific like video essay thing I was watching the other day. I want to plug the channel, but I can't remember. But they were specifically talking about like how bad an idea it was to cling onto Walt's old ideas opposed to like going about finding new things to adapt. And uh, the Black Cauldron was definitely the worst example of that, I think. Um, just something completely outdated and doesn't really... I, I don't want to say it doesn't fit the mold of what a Disney movie should be because the potential is certainly there, but the execution and the messiness of the production is just entirely visible the entire time and i honestly i've always known about this movie just from being a disney nerd but i never thought i would actually watch it so when you guys invited me on i was like oh this is the perfect opportunity to like watch this movie uh because it seems like something i would have never seen if this had not happened brief primer folk walt disney himself dies in like 66 and thus the studio is put into a weird turmoil. The last movie he worked on was Jungle Book. So from there, you had various movies in the 70s and first half of the 80s that were um, very cheap, and some are more well-liked than others, but uh, none of them, well, they all sort of seemed inferior to what the history of Disney was before this. And The Black Cauldron was sort of the culmination of a lot of the younger animators coming in, because the nine old men who I referenced earlier were like the guys who had worked with Walt from the beginning. Most of them had retired by like, I believe Fox and the Hound was the last one where some of them were still around, which was the one right before this. And uh, so The Black Holden was the first big movie for all of those animators to come in on. This most expensive animated movie of all time at that point at $44 million. Um, it only made about $21 million at the time. It was a huge disaster to the point where around the same time, two people, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, had just entered the company, like, near the tail end of this movie's production, and had, like, edited stuff, and were really, like, displeased with the movie, to the point where they were almost hell-bent on, like, just shutting down their animated feature production in general, and just being like, oh, we can just re-release the old ones, focus on the theme parks, and, like, our, some live-action stuff we can do. Animation seems dead at this point. But then, right after this, you had, like, Great Mouse Detective, which did decently well, and Oliver and Company that did decently well, and then ultimately The Little Mermaid, as I mentioned, was uh, pretty beloved and successful, leading to the Renaissance and uh, leading to Disney's ultimate sort of corporate takeover that's been happening uh, for the rest of time uh, as of yet. So uh, that is all the preamble, really. Uh, and unfortunately, it's most of the interesting stuff about this movie because <laughs> it's kind of fucking dull. And I get why no one really cared to re-release it because you, you would want this to be one of those things, right, where it's like, oh, it's the lost gem. You hear especially, it's the darkest Disney movie ever. It's the first PG-rated one. There, it's like, oh my god, there's so much, like, controversy and infamy to it. And then you watch it, and some of that stuff is there. Uh, but then ultimately, it's just like a really dull fantasy story <laughs> that you don't give a shit about. Yeah, I consider myself, I don't want to say a Disney purist, but I'm almost like, I love Disney obscurities so much. Like, I, I find, like, even, like, in the theme parks, like, that of, like, Disney Quest, or, like, their failed attempts at, like, uh, starting, like, chain restaurants across America. Like, I find all that, like, those relics of Disney to be so fascinating. And um, I'm also, like, some of my favorite Disney movies are, like, Treasure Planet or Atlantis, like, movies that didn't do particularly well at the time. <laughs> So going into this, I was like, yeah, I'm ready to like, you know, just be the only fan of the Black Cauldron. And I kind of just left bored 
by the end. Like I, I couldn't tell you the characters' names right now. One of them was like falafel or something. I remember that. <laughs> Princess Alonwi, Terran. Like they're yeah. just really like weird yeah. fancy names that Princess... don't stick in your head enough. All right, I was I was quiet enough because I know what's going to happen with this movie. I'm going to be a ball of rage. Hey. It's just a shitty version of Lord of the Rings to the point where the little fucking Geppetto mustached dog is just golem. He sounds exactly like him. Literally um, exactly like him. I mean, literally exactly. B, dude, the Horned King is one of the laziest motherfuckers I've ever seen. <laughs> right? Like, he, that dude doesn't do shit in this movie. He sits on a fucking chair the whole time. Where is your organization, dude? You're supposed to be this great villain. Your prison has no guards. The, they escape and go from room to room with ease. You have a beautiful, magical, enchanting sword likened to Excalibur or fucking Nazgul or whatever the from Lord of the Rings buried under your prison and you have no idea it's there? You are worthless. He knows he has the John Hurt voice, and he just thinks, like, I can just really ride on that. Yeah, fuck it, this is what we do. You have, like, Green Goblin, if he got shrunk by a ray with one eye as the comedic relief. And he's a he's so fucking dumb and annoying. Pig Boy, as he's referenced, which it just fucking killed me the whole movie. Because <laughs> every time they said it, I'm like, yeah, that's right, that is him. I but, do insist we call him Pig Boy for the rest of the time we talk about the Black Cauldron. Yeah, so, <laughs> right, yeah, no, that's fine. So Pig Boy finds this magic sword. He instantly trips and drops it. Then he does dick with it. How about instead of blocking a hand axe, you stab a guy? No, he stabs, for some reason, pressurized wood barrels of wine that when he stabs him, the wine shoots out like a rocket. And for some reason, again, the most inept prison guards of all time cannot walk on something wet. That stops them. And what is the Horned King, the main villain doing of all time? He's chilling. <laughs> when the green guy comes in and tells him, oh, they got away. It looks like he's about to go to bed. It looks like he has his bedrobe on. Like, what the fuck? The fairies. Why do they look so shitty compared to everything else in the movie? Like, the character design and the animation looks terrible. It looks like my five-year-old got a fucking pack of crayons and tried to draw something. I, flames! Flames! <laughs> the side of my face. This movie was so ungodly and unbelievably boring to the point where it's at, what, like 87 minutes, if that. I paused it eight or nine times to either bitch about it or just do anything else. I hate it. I hate myself for picking it. I hate that it has a weird, like, fan base because it's terrible. But we love all our patrons for voting on it. Please continue to be patrons and keep voting for things. Hey, hey, I'd rather take this than force message Brother Bear. That's true. That was the alternate pick. And I, I think it's a lot more of like a dull one than this one necessarily is. Because like Adam said a lot of things, obviously, just now. Well, because it's the thing of like most of the stuff is just like a lot of these characters are so sort of either completely lacking any agency or are just 
like really annoying attempts to like kind of recreate that Disney style. It's this weird thing where this movie is so in between of like we want to have that same Disney charm, but also we want to have like some of the spookier things. And like everyone who likes this movie talks about like all oh, like the spookier stuff like near the end of the movie with all like the skeletons and stuff. That stuff's kind of interesting, but it's chopped to shit because they edited the hell out of that stuff. And also, it's so a small part of the movie compared to the lame Lord of the Rings adventure we're on with Gurgi. Worst Disney sidekick ever? Yes. Uh, okay, good. I <laughs> hated him. I hated that sidekick. What, what is he exactly? Yeah, right. It has a human face, dog body, yet three fingers on each hand. What the fuck? I understand it's a fantasy movie, but... The best fantasy is based some on reality. Even the fucking Horn King has a, a normal skeleton. The fairies, as terrible as they look, still look like little Santa. Gurgi is just this weird fucking thing. It's it's so dumb. It's and why does it talk? Why does it talk? And when it talks, why does it sound like that? You know, munches and crunches, master. What the fuck? What? <laughs> who? Ooh. Hold on, let, let Adam 2 talk a bit more, Adam. Adam 2, sorry, please Adam continue. Two. I'm sorry, I'm enraged. No, it's good. Uh, I agree with everything Adam said, pretty much. And he brought up a lot of good points, especially with the villain. Very cool-looking guy. But, like Adam said, nothing to show for it. He has... I couldn't tell you what his motive is. Just completely lifeless, not intimidating at all. Because like when he first appears on screen, I'm like, now that's a Disney villain. Like that's cool. And then nothing. Like radio silence for the rest of the movie. I felt nothing. No tension, no anything. And all the gothic stuff is really cool, but it's not enough to cling on to. Like aesthetics can only get you so far, especially in a Disney movie, because like so much of that is based on the memorable characters, the iconic settings, and the world building. And this movie just doesn't do shit with it. But it makes me sad to, like, talk shit so much because so much of it is just simply because of the production. Like, it's the same weird comparison, but the same thing I have to say about, like, Joss Whedon's Justice League versus Zack Snyder's Justice League because it's, like, it doesn't feel like a real movie made by a person. It feels like a movie made by a studio in crisis, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it it almost, it doesn't feel like it's a real movie to critique. It feels like, yeah, it, this is what happens when corporate meddling gets in the way of people trying to do their jobs. And this is what you get. Because uh, it was in production for over five years. Oh, it was longer. Like they had first like bought the rights to do these books, I think around like 19, like some point in the seventies. I believe it was supposed to be released in 1980 even. And then they had like further production stuff. But it's, it's interesting just because like I would definitely recommend, I know Adam too, you saw this as well, the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty, which talks a lot about sort of like the development of like Disney from the production of this movie through to like the end of the Renaissance period, sort of like from this to like Lion King. And they talk a lot about how at this point it was a weird mixture of this stuff that we're talking about, with like all the corporate meddling, but also at the same time, just a bunch of inexperienced animators kind of left on their own to do mm-hmm. whatever with this movie. And I think it's why, like, the aesthetic stuff, it feels also like a movie made by a bunch of younger animators that are just, like, we want to keep, like I said, the Disney vision alive, but also we want to do some edgier stuff. Like, we haven't talked about the witches that show up and all the weird, oh. like, sexual stuff with the witches, particularly oh. when the the one guy, the bard, is shrunk into a frog and then he's, like, in between their boobs. This is so just so weird. Like, I don't get what the point of this is. Pig Boy is just brunette Arthur. 
from uh, from Sword in the Stone. It's the same character design. But the the difference I would say is like I'm I rewatched that recently as well. I've rewatched a bunch of these Disney movies on my letterbox. Um, the Sword in the Stone isn't one I'd seen in a while, and I'm not the hugest fan of that movie. But at the same time, at least with that Arthur, he feels authentically like a kid. Especially because, like, the actor was actually going through puberty at the time, like, breaking up his voice. And that's a lot more interesting and investing. I'm saying the character design. It looks identical, except he's a brunette. Right, but there's also not any of that sort of interesting, because that was around the time when, like, Don Bluth was still working with the studio. And it kind of has that rougher, distinctive edge to it that's not, like, the most impressive visually, but at least feels a bit more, like respectable and a bit more like okay there's there's something to this character as opposed to Taryn feels like the most cleaned up version possible of that and it's lacking any kind of edge weirdly despite how dark this reputation of this movie is he's such like a bland character design all the human designs really are yes the dark reputation of this movie is the last 20 minutes of this movie yeah the main character he doesn't go on any real journey of growth which i think is kind of essential in any given disney movie like i I would say even in the weakest movies you can find like some kind of message to take away like some kind of like you know you show a kid a disney movie with hopes that they take something away from it but i you show a kid this and i'm like what do you like what do they take away from this like what is the message they're gonna be bored for an hour and then scared for the last 15 minutes and not watch the rest of it (laughs) the message is Instead of a magic sword that it could do anything with, bring back the shaved Scottish terrier with a fucking weird voice. Give me that back. <laughs> this movie is... No, I, I completely agree with you, Adam, too. God, that's so weird to say. I completely agree <laughs> with you, Adam, too. There is no message to this movie. There's there's no great sort of hero sacrifice or sort of learning moment. It, it's just scene to scene garbage like it's so loose and played with like if anything this because the animation still let's get on the the animation is still kind of good it's still pretty stellar it looks pretty good i mean especially coming off of like that period of like the 70s and 80s it looks a lot cleaner than especially like coming off of fox and the hound which looks really like very shabby it's sharp it's clean it's pretty stellar looking like especially you know the the point with the black cauldron where it leaks and all and like it looks pretty legit but the story and script really fucking needed at least another pass on it it's just interconnecting moments of fantasy sort of tropes and stereotypes that like i said watching it, you're like oh this is just lord of the rings basically for the most part, it's Lord of the Rings. It's Willow. It's the same story you've seen a thousand times. It needed another pass. It needed a punch up. It needed something to make it interesting, and it just doesn't have it. Yeah, I mean, because you could you could get away with like the no character development thing, maybe if the world around him was cool, but it's not. So then, when the world around him's not cool, you gotta have the characters, and they're not interesting either. And so it's like, okay, is the plot gonna be good? It's not. So, what do you have? You don't have good side characters. There's no music. This is one of the only Disney animated movies with no music, like no songs, no nothing. Excuse me, sir. Elmer Bernstein stole his score from Ghostbusters and just put it in this movie. How dare you not? It's literally like, (laughs) I was listening to this the whole time. I'm like, this sounds so familiar. Is this like the Ghostbusters music? And then Elmer Bernstein shows up in the credits like, oh, fucking course it is. That theremin I recognize anywhere, Elmer. (laughs) Yeah, Although, I will say... 
the only th- thing that could have made this movie worse is bad original songs that might yes. have made it worse. So in a way, I am grateful that we did not have to hear the kids sing or uh, the little side character thing. Oh, yeah, Gurgi have a song? That would be the worst. <laughs> I, I will give you that. That is 100% accurate. That, yes, because I, songs would have been, they would have been so piss poorly written because this movie was such a rush job just sort of keep the license on it or whatever the hell it was, that it would have just been terrible. It would have bogged it down so much more. Yeah, and if anything, they could have just at least, like, taken some more advantage of some of the people they had on staff. Like, I showed Adam these, like, weird concept designs that were done by a young animator working there at the time named Tim Burton. And it's, like, the typical Tim Burton weird squiggly-ass shit. I'll post it on the Twitter probably around the time this episode comes out. And, like, they were just like, no, nah, this is too weird for us. It's like, no, it's too interesting for this movie, evidently. Yes. <laughs> like, you couldn't even implement any of this. And there had a lot of talented people working at the studio around this time. Like, Ron Clements and John Musker were going to direct this, and they went on to do, like, The Little Mermaid and Aladdin and some of these other things. And even, like, as much as we don't want to talk about them, John Lasseter was working there at the time. Right. Some other, like, talented people were, like, coming up at this point. And it just had this weird thing where, like, I think the directors especially, it's this weird combination of Ted Berman, who was, like, this was his last production working with Disney before. He quit entirely um, and retired. And then Richard Rich is the other director, which, one, that's his real name. And, two, he (laughs) left Disney shortly after this and has directed not only The Swan Princess, but every direct-to-video sequel, which is surprisingly a lot to that stupid movie that came out, like, in the 90s. It's a bad Disney ripoff. So that's the talent. That's the people in charge we're working with. And, and, you know, here's the thing. If they would have went Tim Burton's character design, at least there would have been really cool character design. Like, the Horn King kind of looks cool. Like, he's, he's got, like, deer antler horns, which is kind of a cool idea. And he's a skull face. Like, But he's in a giant cloak. You don't see him until the end of the fucking movie. The rest of the character design is so bland and boring. There's nothing even visual in this movie as far as even characters to make you excited. You get a pig. Arguably the best character in the movie is the pig. <laughs> oh, definitely. No, 100%. The pig is the crux of the movie. The pig is Samwise Gangie. Until the pig disappears what? for the third act. Then the like the berries are like, hey, we'll take the pig back home. And then we don't see the pig until the end of the movie. <laughs> they try to drown the pig at one point. Like You're like, right. what the fuck is this? This movie feels like it was written by a sociopath. <laughs> Where it's just a serious... <laughs> series of ideas that are not connected at all and yet here you go this is what you get i mean thomas brought it up earlier but like you know this movie it's so uninteresting yet the production of it is so deeply fascinating like i I believe it was jeffrey katzenberg right that was the one who tried to edit it down like he went in the editing room himself and they had to explain to him like you can't edit an animated movie and he's like, the fuck I can. He's like, I... Right. <laughs> he just... <laughs> <laughs> and, like, wasn't it uh, Eisner that had to, like, go in there and, like, pull him out and be like, yo, you can't do this. Like, Right, because, like, uh, they, they both had come from, like, Paramount. At least I knew Eisner did, came from Paramount. So they were used to, like, live-action stuff. And, like, I believe it was around this time that he, like, went in and saw, like, a bunch of the boards for, like, some other movie. Um, and Eisner was just like, I don't know, I'm so used to reading scripts, I can't on all these pictures, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> like, this, yeah. they're coming into all this. So, And, th- like I said, that Waking Sleeping Beauty documentary is so interesting for that kind of clash. Yes. Between really artists great. and these guys, yeah. Like we mentioned, like this, there were so many different delays because of people like, this was around the time where Don Bluth left and took about like 25% of the animators 
with him. And I, around this time, he was doing stuff like Secret of Nim, and not too long after this was like the um, American Tale, which were like beating Disney roundly around this time. Like even the biggest depressing point is like this same year that Care Bears movie came out and was way more successful than this. <laughs> like that's how low they were at at this point. <laughs> like one of its fourth or fifth weekends or something like yeah i think even like the weekend it came out an, a re-release of et was like number one jesus like, i they couldn't even beat that and it's kind of it's interesting what you said about like this and the the latter movie that we're going to talk about like they represent like a starting period and like an ending period to like okay so like this is the rubble of which they started like this is their lowest point and it really does show you how low they can go and it, honestly, it's not even, I did my ranking on Letterboxd today. It's not, not even my least favorite Disney movie, but it's damn near close. Out of curiosity, what is the worst one to you? Uh, Home on the Range is my least favorite, simply because I always refer to that movie as the movie as a kid that made me realize movies could be bad. And therefore, it has a very dark place in my heart where I realized that that's an all sunshine and rainbows when it comes to my movie watching. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing. I would say that one is worse. Also, I'd say my least favorite is Chicken Little. Chicken Little is not a good movie, but it's one that I grew up with. So mm -hmm. I have, I don't think it's good at all, but it's it's hard for me to hate it either. Because like, I still have fond memories seeing it with my parents and like, you know, the whole thing. So um, I think I'm a little bit easier on that one than most people are. I can see that. Adam, what is this the worst one to you? No, this is not the worst Disney movie to me. I mean, it's close. This is pretty bottom bottom of the barrel. I, I mean, I'll I'll agree. But Thomas, I'm right there with you, man. Fucking Chicken Little. Wow. Oh. I didn't realize you're so oh. disdained for Chicken Little. Wow. Oh, dude, it, no, it's Chicken Chicken Little is the only Disney movie in the main canon that I have not finished. I don't know. If it's because the animation doesn't hold up, or it's because how fucking much I hate Zach Braff. That might have something to do with it. <laughs> oh, man. And Home on the Range is right up there, too, though. When did you this guys watch it? Third. This is probably the third. I'd go Chicken Little, Home on the Range, then this. Okay. That's about my same thing as well. But, yeah, I mean, I, I watched it around the time that it came out, Adam, too, to answer oh. your question. And I, I was like, to be fair, I was more like 12, 13 around that time. So it was when I was starting to get out of it, but I was still like a secret Disney fan. To that extent, mm -hmm. just like, it's not cool, but I'll still watch it. And I was just like, man, I don't know. Especially because that was the first, like, CG one they did. And that was, like, Circle 7 animation. Who was going to do all those bad direct-to-video sequels like Pixar movies that never happened. And it was, like, a it was a real bummer to me. I'm just like, oh, God. <laughs> well, <laughs> where we're going to go. I mean, I, I, I have a hard... Like, even if I did revisit Chicken Little, I have a hard time believing it would be lower than Black Cauldron for me. Because at least Chicken Little, I can, like, associate some so bad it's entertaining qualities to it this is just straight up boring to me like and that's one of the worst offenses you can have in an animated movie in my opinion like it's nearly impossible to make me bored in a disney movie and yet this somehow accomplishes it chicken little at least has like a consistent kinetic energy as opposed to this is just like yeah it really drags despite being about 82 minutes long and it's one of those where like like we mentioned you want to like see this as like underrated like gem that no one's ever seen before that you want to like champion at some point but like honestly you watch it's like oh i get why they didn't release this on home video till like 1998 i get oh, why absolutely. this is the black sheep <laughs> like no one wants to associate themselves with this 
Absolutely. I love finding like these like lost relics of like cinema and just be like, yeah, this movie's great. Like fuck you. Like fuck everybody that disagrees with me. Because like, for example, my favorite Star Wars movie is The Last Jedi. Like I I I, I love like Treasure Planet, Atlantis, like I love all these like kind of lost Disney movies. I was so ready to love this. And at every turn, it was like it was insulting me and insulting like like what i love about disney but i I am glad that i finally watched it because now i can say that i've seen it and i can not just look at it as if it's like a production story i can actually say i've watched the film i've experienced it and have an actual opinion on it now well those sound like pretty good final thoughts adam too so we'll go ahead and start doing those now so adam your final thoughts on the black cauldron It, it is in a singular word boring And that, to me, is the worst example of a film. There's nothing to take away from this movie. There's no sort of excitement, no hero's plight, no um, aesthetic value, no character design, no good songs, no good, you know, even romance angle, no good fight scenes, no action, no, no, no drama, no nothing. This movie's not even a wet fart, because at least a wet fart, there's something with it. It, it, it's a ghost fart. It, it's it's it, it's just it exists. Um, I get the sort of fascination with it because of the production behind it, and the fact of the matter is, it's a PG Disney movie, and there's some. For some reason, everyone's like, "Oh, there's scary images." I think those are people who haven't seen the fucking movie because it's in the last twenty minutes, and even then, you're like, "Okay, fine." It's a piss poor last grab attempt to save a sort of financially struggling studio and that's exactly what this movie is it's an example of how to not do that properly but in that way it's very curious because to see what they became only four years later with little mermaid so it it is uh it's boring it's forgettable it's going to be like most of those we've watched on the show or i'm like i'm not going to remember any of this but I am glad I watched it uh, just because of all the stigma behind it. But it's not one that I would ever watch again or recommend anyone to watch. Yeah, um, I, I would say it's really only for if you're a Disney sort of history completionist type of person. Like maybe Adam 2 and I are. We're just like, well, gotta check that off the list. Because it's on Disney+. Plus. It's there. <laughs> you can watch it. They, they're, um, they're not going to advertise it very clearly. But it's there if you go digging. And, uh, yeah, it, it's just sort of like there's some interesting stuff, like um, sort of the look of the Horned King and some of the sequences near the end. And if anything, I'd also recommend finding some of, like, the deleted stuff that's, like, floating around on the internet particularly. There was a whole sequence where one of the henchmen got killed by one of the Skull Guys and literally, like, melts into mm-hmm. a skeleton that's like, oh, God, wow, that looks fascinating. Maybe if that wasn't here, I'd be slightly more kind to it. But that's the thing is the, the most interesting stuff is clearly very chopped up. And then most of the movie is spent with a bunch of characters you really don't give a shit about. So I get why it's sort of like lost to the ages and why it's uh, kind of like the black sheep of the Disney animated canon. Um, But, you know, it's not the worst one, but it's still uh, one of the lower ones. And I I would definitely say, like, if nothing else, it gave us the ashes that the Phoenix would rise out of. That gave us, as Adam mentioned, like all of our sort of favorite movies of that 90s era and late 80s era. So nothing else, it's, it's good for that. Well, I mean, you know, if there's anything that inspires creativity, it's being at your lowest point. So mm-hmm. 
in a way, I am grateful that this exists because we got so many classics from just how low this one got. True. Maybe like our next film that we'll talk about in a second. But first, here's a promo for an ESO so you can queue up right after ours. My name is Mark McCrae, and I'm the author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. I'm Dan Klink, co-host of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives features programming trends from the 1966 television season all the way through the last hurrah of the early digital age of the 1990s. On the show, if it's animated, we talk about it. Order your signed copy today at tbsool.com. And listen to the podcast at esonetwork.com and all podcast platforms. And now we're going into our second feature, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Here it is, the moment you've been waiting for. This spring, the movie you've been waiting for is coming to home video. It's Disney's 34th full-length animated feature. Every day, he rang the bells that brought the city to life. If I picked a day to fly, oh, this would be it. I'll go. When he came out of hiding... By the way, great mask. ...and came to the party... ...his whole world turned topsy-turvy. How dare you defy me? What a woman. This spring, don't miss the celebration. Wine, women, and so. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, coming to video. So uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame came out uh, June 21st, 1996. In terms of a history setup, this is after all the Renaissance stuff happened that we mentioned earlier, like Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Lion King had all been big hits. And this is also following up Pocahontas. And I would argue this, along with Pocahontas and Lion King, kind of fit this weird thing where post-Beauty and the Beast, where that got nominated for Best Picture and was so acclaimed, Jeffrey Katzenberg was so determined to get an animated movie to win Best Picture um, that it feels like, I would argue, Lion King, Pocahontas, and even this, which was the last movie that has any of like, the fingerprints of Katzenberg on it, are kind of attempting to sort of go for that kind of acclaim. And um, I would argue Pocahontas is like the worst example of that. Yes. Lion King is probably the best example. And then Hunchback is the one that I think kind of gets swept under the rug a bit more. I know like a lot of people around more of my age kind of like really love it. But I think it feels like one that was especially sort of dismissed around the time that it came out. And the weird thing is, like, I didn't mention much about sort of my introduction to Disney at the start. Mainly because this was not only, like, the first big one I got into as a kid. This was maybe the first movie I saw in a theater. Wow. Oh, wow. To be fair, I was very young, and I loved this movie. And going back and revisiting, it's just like, wow. This is such a dark disturbing upsetting movie when i was like four fucking loved it best movie <laughs> it explains maybe too much for sure on that but um yeah i really loved it at the time and i haven't seen it in a while and I, i've sort of gotten to like the backlash that kind of came against it about like oh it's not that close to the novel and some of this other stuff and i'm like oh is it gonna hold up that well and i'll say it has some very huge clear weaknesses but i would argue it also has like some of the best examples of what i love about Disney animation in this one in particular. But I'm curious, especially of uh, your opinion on it, Adam, too. Yeah. Um, so my history with this movie, weirdly enough, like I said earlier, like the first few that I got were like Little Mermaid, Toy Story, um, and Lion King. Like those are my introductory uh, movies for my grandfather. And I remember I got, he bought me this one 
I don't know why I remember this so clearly, but I he bought this for me the week that Sam Raimi's Spider-Man came out because I remember my mom taking me to see Spider-Man in theaters and then that weekend uh, when I was at my mom's like apartment, like we were watching this for the first time. I I really loved this movie as a kid. Like even like at the age of five, I just really adored it. I don't know. I was very, even though I didn't understand like all the mechanics of the plot and everything, there's something about the story and the emotion and the characters that I really grappled to as a kid. And it's one that I revisited quite a bit. And yet, you know, like most Disney movies, it's one that I went many, many years without seeing again. So I was really excited to rewatch this, especially because I did Black Cauldron first. So I was like, okay, it'll be nice to re- like do this second and like kind of have like a refresher. And yeah, it's still really damn good. It, it's I honestly forgot how dense and dark it is at points, but it still really works. And it always puts a smile on my face. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad to say I, I still think it holds up pretty well. Well, and I'm curious, Adam, uh, you had kind of said you hadn't seen this one in a while and you weren't a huge fan of it when it came out, but uh, how do you feel about it now? Uh, all right, well, a little bit of backstory. I was definitely one of those who was like, oh, this is just dumb. Like, I didn't like it. I didn't like the talking gargoyles. I still don't like the talking gargoyles. We'll get into that. That's a huge problem. I completely agree. We'll get into that. So, it's fucking unnecessary. Uh, but I didn't. I did not care for it when it first came out. And uh, after a rewatch, watching it now, it's not necessarily a masterpiece of Disney animation. Uh, I mean, the animation's great, but as far as the full-on movie. But I dare say this is top-tier Disney so beautiful to even look at and the fact that uh the villain frollo is just this horned up fucking piece of shit is such a different take on a disney villain it's so like disturbing the way he is but still like you want to follow him because the character design the voice performance is so good it's just this is such a good movie but the thing that stops it from being perfect is the classic Disney tropes. Like I said, the gargoyles or even the, uh, the jester guy with his stupid song and the way he looks and the goat and all this. It, it, none of that is necessary in this movie. And I think that's what kind of hinders this movie still to me and, and probably the majority of people who don't like it to this day. There's definitely tonal problems we'll, we'll get into because, like, it, especially when this movie starts off as this, where I, I, you're you're talking about the Chopin character who's uh, the, played by Paul Kendall, who I think introduces the movie very well with his opening song. I think the the Bells of Notre Dame song I think really works, and it's one of those things where like people talk about, oh, the Black Cauldron's really dark, but like that stuff is much more aesthetic and kind of like pushed off to the side of the last bit of the movie, as opposed to this, like from the start thematically, is such a dark movie about like. Uh, oppression and persecution and especially like this weird lust thing that you're talking about with the uh Frollo character who should mention Tony J one of the great voice actors doesn't get enough credit who you've heard elsewhere but this is like his finest role he said it was like his bid for immortality and it fits because Frollo was one of those characters where like he was apparently based on like the uh, Ray Fiennes character from Schindler's List which makes a lot of sense <laughs> he feels very yeah. similar like cruel and vicious in the Hellfire song is like one of the best Disney sequences ever. It's just like such yeah. a beautiful and like especially the way that it's animated and the way it looks and everything. But like throughout, it's a consistently dark, oppressive movie that still at the same time has this beauty 
that makes you at least invested to keep going with it instead of just slogging through like depressing awfulness the whole time. Yeah, and I also forgot how small scale this movie is. Like, and I think that's a good thing. But I, I for some reason in my my memory of it, I remember it being they went on more of an adventure, but it's really just reduced to the town, like just this the center of town, really, uh, like between the church and uh, like a small little section where Esmeralda like comes in. Like you don't really go that far, but I like that about it. Like it's all about, like you said, the oppression of the town. I think that's a really cool quality. Like I I, and I like how it manages to feel like an epic story story on such a small scale uh character focused script i think that's really cool yeah i think particularly it manages to do that with even something as isolated as like the out there number which i think is one of my favorite of like the i want songs that disney did all the time of just Mm -hmm. like a character stating what they want and i think that's a great example of where it's isolated to the bell tower but it's just the way that it's shot like so much great photography of like going through the catacombs different corners of the notre dame like cathedral and hearing tom holtz who i think is an underrated disney performer as uh, Quasimodo. I think it's such a beautiful sort of angelic but frail voice that works so well for his character yeah. in the out there. I love the way that it's choreographed and his weird almost like parkour kind of thing where he's like jumping around the fucking <laughs> bell towers and shit. Um, it, it's so like, it really opens up the scope despite, like you mentioned, it being a much more like sort of intimate character story overall. What It's also, it reminds me a lot of Beauty and the Beast in that sense, right? Where because like you're, you're set in Beast's like mansion for Pretty much the entire movie except for like the beginning end right but the the film does such a good job at making that feel massive like the corridors of the ballroom and the and like the library and stuff in beauty and the beast are so fully realized and detailed that it feels lived in and therefore you want to spend time in there and that is just as if not even more applied here i think it's yeah i, I mean watching this again on disney plus i was watching it on my tv and like on i can't remember if it was in 4k or just like really crystal clear hd but it was beautiful to watch um the restoration is just stunning and it holds up really well like all these years later so i was yeah i was just like immersed all over again and it was like a lovely experience yeah i i watched this with my daughter my five-year-old and uh she was totally into it the only thing that bothered her is there's no princess i'm like well Esmeralda's kind of a princess so <laughs> that that was a thing but she was really really enjoying this movie she loved it she she watched the whole thing she thought it was very funny especially when um oh, i can't remember his name but kevin klein made the horse sit down on the guard she laughed she thought it was hilarious she was a uh, hook line and sinker into this in comparison to our previous feature to where five minutes in she's like i don't know i want to watch something else she was totally into it and and that's one thing that i do enjoy again not to play the well i'm a dad card but to be able to go back and watch some of these that I maybe didn't give a fair enough shake to or go back and watch it sort of vicariously through a child's eyes, it makes you appreciate it a lot more because it is a thrilling movie. It's great. And I do agree. Tom Hulse, who I'm typically not a huge fan of his, period. I think he's fine. But his performance as Quasimodo is so good. It's so underrated. And I mean, Kevin Klein, Demi Moore, all it's it's a pretty stellar voice cast. I love the look of pretty much everything in this movie. It's just, I, I'm sort of dumbfounded why this is considered so weak, other than the, sort of the faults I, I mentioned. But even Tarzan, which is really sort of cherished, has 
pretty much the same faults that this one does. You know, like we mentioned, the subject material, especially sort of Frollo's song, is so dark. It's so twisted and so sexually charged. And it's 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 kind of unlike anything they've done prior or since. Yeah, the the Hellfire thing obviously is something that like, when I was a kid I was not aware of what the hell was exactly yeah. going on, except like oh he wants to do something bad to Esmeralda and it's like oh no he wants to do a lot of horrible things he to wants, Esmeralda that are he, like, wants, really he wants to do some bad he wants yeah. to do some bad that's they're, damn shit. that are really upsetting we should also credit uh, some of the people who like wrote the music for here which is like uh, Stephen Schwartz did the the lyrics who later like, he did Pocahontas and later going to like Wicked and stuff like that. And then uh, Alan Menken, who had done the scores ever since like Little Mermaid on most of the musical ones, especially. I think this is his most underrated score, just as an overall movie score. I think it's like beautiful and rousing. Like the choral stuff especially is great. And in Hellfire, you really see that where like it, it feels like this big operatic massive thing that once again is all I say with one character in his imagination. And it's like it shows like the how powerful, especially a hand-drawn animation, can be about covering something so taboo and controversial, and does such a phenomenal job. Especially the way like Esmeralda appears in the fire and all this other stuff. It's it's really incredible. I can get why that, especially, is like really lasted in the consciousness of people around like Adam too and my age. We're just like, oh yeah, that was really fucked up. And I don't know why, and now I know why, and it's really fucked up. <laughs> right. I forgot. Did this get any Oscar attention? I think it got like a best score like it was a weird time where like comedy musical score was a category for the academy awards so it got like a nomination for that um i mean you can tell that they're trying to position like they even get like a song one for like i think the one they were trying to really push was the god help the outcasts which is probably like the one of the weaker songs to me just because it feels almost more like it's a christian song from around that time in particular (laughs) it feels like it'd be on christian radio well right but dude dude even quasimodo's main song like his first song is basically the little mermaid song where she wants to be part of the world and he wants to be out there it, it's kind of the same beat you know i mean well to, look every one of these disney renaissance movies kind of have that aladdin has that with like one of his songs like all yeah like, they, a lot of them have this kind of song to it hell even lion king has them true they, they all have that kind of structure to it but I think without there, it's able to at least like differentiate itself by being fully about someone who not isn't just a part of like the under the sea king or whatever. He's alone entirely, except for his gargoyle pals who are so great and so funny. Everyone loves them. They're so wonderful, right? Everyone loves those gargoyles. What a huge misstep was that? I, I don't know. Because like when I was a kid, I thought they were funny. Upon rewatch, it didn't get to the point of, and again, I already forgot the sidekick in Black Hondren's name, but yeah, it. Fair. It didn't get to that point with me where they were that grating, but there there was definitely a point where I was like, okay, this is like it's not necessary. Like a lot of the time in like a lot of Disney movies where there's like comedic relief, you're like, oh, you didn't really need to do that. But in this movie, especially, I'm like, you really didn't have to do that. Like well, it's like when you mentioned that your daughter left that, like the Kevin Klein bit with the horse. Like, that's plenty. Yeah, like that, that's that's enough. enough. I agree. They, they never got. I, I still don't think they're grading. I, I never. I don't think that. But to me, they remind me of like Mushu and Milan, where they just—they're not necessary. It doesn't need to be there. Like yeah. there's no. I like the idea of him at least having like gargoyles as sort of like his only friends that like come to life only when he can see them. It's just a problem of one. There are too many of them. I think if you just had one. Or maybe even two. Like, I don't mind the two. There's the female, like, the older one, and then there's yeah. the prim and proper British one. 
Um, but I think that Jason Alexander is the exact overkill. <laughs> That's where it pulls over. <laughs> and it feels like they're just kind of trying to do, like, genie again. With, like, let's cast a comedian and all of that. If they would lead more into those being, like, maybe imaginary friends, it would have worked so much better. Right, because they, they're really inconsistent about that. Because sometimes they're imaginary, but they're not imaginary to certain things. And they participate in the battle at the end. That's where it really gets grating. Where it's like, there is this right. mass, like, Paris is burning. And... Like, fucking, you're doing your uh, Wizard of Oz, like, fly my prettiest jokes and shit. Like, it's just like, guys, we don't need to do this. You're better than this. I mean, again, because, like, I know every Disney movie has that. Like, they have the sidekicks that make jokes. But in this one especially, considering it's a good, it's a bad juxtaposition almost to, like, how dark the material is and how light their jokes are. Like, sometimes it meshes well. Like, um, I think, like, the Beauty and the Beast, like, the, the little side characters in that work perfectly in that movie, right? Because they're actual characters. They, they serve a purpose to the narrative, and they have an actual conclusion by the end. But I would say this has, like, the worst example of it, because, like, they serve no purpose other than having levity. It feels like something, you know, I work in marketing, and it's, like, it feels like something that's just there for marketing material. It doesn't feel like it's there for narrative purpose so you know as good as this movie is it's definitely like a it's definitely a downvote for me and lord knows and i was a kid like the the marketing for this was very much based on like festival of fools and the gargoyles like they didn't mention any of the other shit like i remember there was like a burger king commercial where like they sold puppets at burger king and it's just like a kid like look it's quasimodo and everyone's playing like i think that's i think what turned people off so much was really like the disney machine seeming to churn out a movie that felt like oh this is like a really crass commercial version of this older story and like with the original source material like i've, I've read the original book since and I can say that um, it's interesting, especially because it's mostly about the architecture of the building, really. Because it was okay. like the building was new at the time. And it's just like, yes. oh my god, this incredible building. It was like him trying to kind of preserve the building at the time, which I really respect. But at the same time, it, it, the story stuff feels a lot more hidden in there. And he's even like, since he adapted into like an opera that removed a lot of that stuff, this story's been changing so much. I necessarily don't mind it being changed all the way up to this point in the way it does, where I still think it keeps a lot of the darkness there, and also I think gives Quasimodo a bit more of, like, character depth than I would say a lot of other versions have done. No, I, I, I definitely agree with you. And, you know, even to get back on the Gargoyles with with what Adam, too, again, I, I don't, I'm not comfortable saying that, but with what Adam, too, was saying, to me, you, you kind of got the perfect mix of that type of character to where, like, the fun, spunky sidekick that you love, and then the ones that kind of don't matter with, like, Hercules. With Hades, two guys. To me, that's the perfect mix of this. Of, of this. And then with the goat, with the earring, it, it doesn't fit in the grand sort of scheme of this movie because it is inherently a very dark story. And they tell it in very dark sort of ways a lot in this movie. But then you get these just dumb bullshit, we got to sell toys moments. And that's what it feels like. Yeah, and that's something, I mean, of course, when I was like, I think five, when I watched it for the first time, I, I that's not something that I, of course, acknowledged when I was a kid, because, you know, when you're a kid, and you're watching these movies, it's not, it, it just flies over your head, like all that stuff, because it, sure. it, it, it hits you exactly. So rewatching it, it was certainly interesting, because not only did you see like the, the definite, like, here's the marketing and the toy push, but also like, you do also miss how dark and depressing and honestly layered the story and themes are so like it was an equal measure for me where there are things definitely where it's not as great as i remember i remember it kind of being like a disney masterpiece and 
I walked away with it being, yeah, it's really bold and really good, but not quite a masterpiece, but not bad either. Not, not like by any stretch of imagination, this movie bad. It's, it's really, really damn good. Just maybe not also as good as I remember it. Yeah. Cause like there's other problems that we haven't really mentioned. Like I would say, I like, I agree. I like Kevin Klein, but I would say Phoebe's is, is kind of like a lame character overall. Yeah. He feels just sort of like, it's this weird thing where Kevin Klein obviously has like a lot of energy that is put into the character, but he's like animated so stiffly. But it reminds me a lot of like John Smith from Pocahontas, where mm. he feels so, so much more stiff and still weird. No, and I even like, say it's very proto John Smith. Well, no, post John Smith, because it's right well, after. Post John Smith, but still right. proto. It feels like this, a weaker version of even that weak character. I don't know. He's like, the, I don't want to go into Pocahontas, but he is such like a fucking blank piece of paper <laughs> in that movie. Because at least like. Kevin Klein, I agree, has a lot of, like, great sort of comedic timing and stuff that's going on here. The animation, I think, is just trying to kind of catch up. So that kind of hurts, especially, like, sort of the romantic angle, which I like the idea that they don't have Esmeralda end up with Quasimodo. Because it feels like it's much more a story about, like, him learning to have, like, a friend to some degree. He doesn't need to be a romantic connection. But at the same time, like, her ultimate romantic connection is with Phoebes, who is one of the duller human characters. And it feels like, especially when Quasimodo, like, brings their hands together and stuff, just like, is this really earned? it's also weird because like a lot of the movie is very anti-authoritarianism and then like you have his character and like he's also a sense of authority but he's the good kind of authority so it's very weird to me like the kind of line they try to like push with him like it's kind of a very middle of the road kind of thing i mean i i like kevin klein a lot like just in general and i think he his voice fits the character well but the the character also doesn't I don't know. It doesn't. I mean, it's everything you guys said. He doesn't really mesh completely well to the narrative because I, I really do think him and Esmeralda are, are enough. Like I cannot, I can, I not think of anything that Kevin Klein's character adds to the movie that wasn't already there. Honestly, like funny bits aside, like that's it. He's got a bitch and goatee. He adds that to the movie. That's true. That's he true. Have that. And I will say, I think Esmeralda, while I think there's there's been some criticism, especially sort of like of the treatment of the Romani characters, which they use a different word. We're not going to use that word here because uh, there's been a lot of stuff post this movie that's like, that's not a great word to say. But um, sort of like that treatment of the Romani people, I can get why it's kind of like it feels sanded over, especially with the fact of like the sort of how the Catholic Church is even treated in this movie. Like where Judge Frollo was originally an archdeacon and they changed that and they're like, we don't want to offend any of the Catholics and the Catholic Church is totally treated as like, this is a safe haven for you. And it's like, sure, sure it always was, <laughs> guys, right? <laughs> um, but uh, I, like they, they stand over some of those edges, but at the same time, I think Esmeralda is like a fun, spunky character who I like, I, I believe her sort of search to like try and protect her people and also her empathy toward Quasimodo, I think is really endearing. It doesn't go to the point where it feels like she's pitying him either. Like you genuinely buy the friendship. It doesn't feel like, oh, this poor guy that I have to help. Like it, no, like she genuinely sees his good qualities and, and natures. And he like also sees like the good in like her cause and what she's doing. And you, I don't know, you feel the connection. Like, it doesn't feel like a forced relationship either. So that's, like, why the ending actually does hit, because you believe their friendship and what they would do for each other. So I think it works in that regard. I definitely, I, I definitely, definitely agree with you on that aspect. And, and one thing I do want to say is sort of the portrayal of the, the sort of the Romani people in this. I, I love that they're all different sort of colors and looks and creeds and everything it's not such a stereotypical sort of example it's sort of a group of like-minded 
sort of way, you know, wandering people that sort of get together. And because it could have gotten very problematic very fast. And I mean, obviously, the word that shall not be mentioned is problematic by today's standards, which I got to be honest, I had no idea up until recently, which I think that's most people, just because we're finally catching up to horrible things that we knew nothing about. But um, I do like that it's not a sort of stereotypical look to all of them. I think that's handled actually really well. Yeah, they're not treated as necessarily as bad as they could have been. Yeah, I agree for the time. It feels like it's at least progressive to a certain degree. Um, but as we've mentioned, they kind of, they did some things that we, you know, as a society of kind of like, especially as like young kids like Adam too and I were, we kind of like glommed onto like, oh, that's not why, a problem, why, right? That's what they're called. Why do you keep singling me out as the old man? <laughs> so this whole episode, well, me and Adam too. Like I'm just sitting here like, God damn it. Grand, like I'm Grand torino you. Like what the fuck? <laughs> Why well, didn't we cover three caballeros? Stay on my goddamn lawn furniture. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think they, I agree. I think they at least do a pretty good job of singling out that like this persecution is a huge problem. Um, and that it was at, at the very least they did as much as they could within like a Disney-fied sphere on that. And I think that's the stuff, like you said, that like feels the most interesting as opposed to like once they have like all this like horrible, like Esmeralda's going to be burnt up and then they have like a bunch of guards like doing goofy yells and shit. That's, that's a problem. I agree. It's just that like they'll have weird tonal inconsistencies just kind of fall off. Um, but and especially even like we, we mentioned some of the songs, but I would say the weakest song is definitely the gargoyle song. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Um, where it feels, it, it feels like it yeah. could be like fun in a more bigger showy Broadway way where like most of these songs are big Broadway numbers, but that feels like straight up, like a straight up huge comedy number that just feels so like unfitting for this entire thing. <laughs> it feels like it's the song because kids will think they're funny. So here's their song. That's what it feels like. There's not really a lot of thought or care put into it. It's just, hey, go and make the funny guys sing. It's dumb. It's dumb. Yeah, that, it, it's weird because like this, I, I would say this has the highest, like some of the highest highs of Disney. Like truly, like uh, a genuine political kind of message, a gorgeous animation, good songs opposed to the bad songs, um, memorable characters a good heart, all that good stuff, but also the weak comedic characters, the bad songs, um, some Promax stereotypes. So it's interesting, uh, but I, I do genuinely think the good outweighs the bad in that regard, because it's like, again, the highs are just so damn high. And even though it didn't quite like live up to like how high I remembered it being as a kid, I can see why it's so heavily regarded like still today, because... I don't know. Like, there's there's just points in the movie where I'm kind of like astounded at like, wow, they actually did that, um, and stuff. I don't feel like they would ever do in a modern day today uh, with their like most recent movies. So yeah, I, I still greatly respect it. And, and would you say you would you personally say this is the end of the Renaissance to you, or would you say it's a bit later? Um, personally, for me, I mean, I, I you mentioned earlier Tarzan. I think that was like one ninety nine, ninety eight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I think Tarzan's probably what I would consider to be even maybe Lilo and Stitch. I know that's a little bit late, but like Lilo and Stitch was a big hit and also very innovative and uh, one of the last hurrahs of uh, hand drawn animation. But 
Actually, yeah, Lilo and Stitch is my answer. I think that's not one that gets thrown around a lot, but that's my answer, Lilo and Stitch. Um, yeah, I guess I would also probably put Treasure Plant more as, like, that's, like, the nail in the coffin. Because, unfortunately, right. I, I agree. I don't think that one is nearly as bad as people say it is. But it is definitely sort of like a, I don't think as big a flop as, like, a Black Cauldron, but the one that made it officially like, I... we're going to stop doing hand-drawn stuff. I love Treasure Planet, um, and I fully admit most of that's nostalgia, but I remember seeing that, because uh, I remember it came out Thanksgiving 2003, and I remember begging my mom to go see it with me on Thanksgiving Day, like, while my grandparents were, like, making Thanksgiving dinner. We went, and I st- distinctly remember going to the AMC theater, and we were the only ones in the theater that, like, Thanksgiving Day, and it was depressing, but I loved the movie, and I've rewatched it recently, and it holds up really well, in my opinion, so... Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't leave Lone Stitch just because it's the big hit. It was like their last big hand-drawn hit. But in my heart, sure, Treasure Planet's definitely up there. Okay, but the, you, it sounded like you kind of had solid final thoughts for Hunchback. But let's go ahead to Adam, and especially along with your final thoughts on Hunchback, also, would you consider it the end of the Renaissance? No, I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. it's Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Mm. I think the, the final sort of hurrah like i understand lilo and stitch was a big hit i I do really enjoy treasure planet as well but i think atlantis was i mean it wasn't a flop of course but one that people are like uh maybe disney is stretching a little far at this point and i i think atlantis was kind of the one and my final thoughts on hunchback is i think it's a it's a perfectly fine movie i think it's really fun it's damn near a magnificent movie like I said, the, the the gargoyles are probably the big thing in it that sort of keep it from getting that notch. Uh, but still, I think it's it's beautifully animated. It does have some really fucking bangers of songs. It's got really, really good character design and voice acting. And you find yourself genuinely caring about a plutonic friendship in a Disney movie. And that's not something that happens quite often it's usually a lot of romance and in this it's it's just a genuine friendship for that i mean i i I think it it's not underrated it's not overrated i think it fits perfectly where it does for most people like that was pretty good and i i think that's an accurate description it's pretty damn good yeah i mean when i was younger like i said this was sort of like a big movie i clawed onto and loved i would say it's definitely not quite in that tier like it's not a top 10 disney necessarily but I say it has a fair shot, like top fifteen or twenty. I would say in terms of just like the, like I said, the grand scale, the sort of epic nature of it, despite being intimate sort of character thing. Like I think I agree. I think the good well outweighs the bad, but the bad is still lingering enough to where you're like, okay, this definitely puts an asterisk on it being like top tier Disney necessarily. But the stuff that is great is like huge heights that I think deserve a bit more credit for what they are. If nothing else, just the vocal for performance of someone like a Tony J. And the Frollo character in general, I think, is one of the more daring examples of, like, a Disney animated villain in particular. Um, But, yeah, I would definitely say if you uh, kind of stayed away from this because of sort of that reputation it has of maybe either being too dark or too light a version of this dark story, I'd say give it a shot, especially if you have that uh, Disney Plus there. Because as Adam, too, mentioned, I really agree. I love the look of the restoration. It's one of those great examples where, like, it really feels big and sweeping, especially a sequence we didn't talk about, but the whole bit where Quasimodo is, like, on the rope and picks up Esmeralda out of, like, the fire pit and then brings her back up 
um, and says like sanctuary. Just like that's a dope moment. That's such a really well animated moment, and it's, it's a really great meld of like the CG and the two D. There's some like Disney moments that are like seared into your brain of like the you remember the first time you watched them and how you felt when you saw that imagery for the first time, and that is like the exact moment that you're talking about is one of my like all time favorite Disney moments. And watching it again the other day. I, I got chills down my spine watching it again. So yeah, I highly recommend watching the restoration on Disney Plus. It looks amazing. Yes, and uh, that's the end of our discussion of our two movies. But we got some stuff to do before the end, where we'll pick our movies for next week. Stay tuned for that, uh, including some feedback from all of y'all. Because uh, every week at DEDB Pod on Twitter and Facebook, we ask you about your favorite, least favorite movies related to whatever topic we're doing. And so we got some people who contributed, like uh, James Rodriguez at RodgersJ04, friend of the show, says, uh, Topping my favorites are Lilo and Stitch and The Lion King with Frozen and The Emperor's New Groove following closely right after. My least favorites uh, include Cinderella, Pocahontas, and Peter Pan. A special mention for the overlong advert that is Ralph Breaks the Internet. Emily Slade at Why This Film Pod uh, says, Best, Fantasia, Fantasia 2000, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Zootopia. Worst, I'd argue no movie falls under this category. They all bring at least something. But then there are some that I haven't seen uh, for fear of this theory falling, uh, like Home on the Range or Chicken Little. Also, The Black Cauldron is a gem, a hot mess of a gem, a diamond in the rough, a terrible, wonderful pile of poo. Um, Christian Alvarez says, uh, Disney is a well-known studio for their animation. It has more successes than failures, uh, compared to their live action department, especially over the years. Uh, my favorites start with, uh, Disney's Fantasia, which helps me appreciate classical music as a young kid. Uh, Aladdin is my favorite because of Ron Williams' electrifying performance as the genie. And The Emperor's New Groove and Atlantis the Lost Empire are underrated gems. Uh, my least favorite Disney animated movies are probably Dinosaur and the animated sequels that Michael Eisner produced throughout his tenure. Uh, Rachel Hillis says, uh, for best, Aladdin, which has the best song from anything Disney, Beauty and the Beast, which has the highest concentration of great songs, Emperor's New Groove, Lilo and Stitch, and Sleeping Beauty, to keep it to a top five. An honorable mention has to go to The Great Mouse Detective, because it's, uh, super underrated. And, uh, worse, never been a fan of Pocahontas or Pinocchio, the latter being because, uh, in my opinion, it's extremely disturbing. Brian Kane says, The Black Cauldron is a side of Disney that I wish would come back. Uh, we need more kids' movies that scare the shit out of them um and then movies after work at movies work on twitter says best great mouse detective jungle book moana beauty and the beast fantasia and emperor's new groove worst frozen black cauldron meet the robinsons uh chicken little zootopia and the lion king 2019 which technically doesn't count but also was animated i'll give him that <laughs> meet the robinsons slander hurts my heart just a little bit but i'll let it pass so that, that's a question I had, given, like, your affection for Chicken Little. You're a fan of sort of that weird mid-2000s period, then, with some of that stuff, like, Be the Robinsons oh. and Bolt. Um, Bolt is okay. I saw it once in theaters. I barely—I I didn't even, like, love it as a kid. But Meet the Robinsons, that's a movie—I don't know if you guys have this movie, but sometimes if I, like, want to tear up a little bit, I'll watch a certain scene from a certain movie on YouTube, and it'll get, like, a good tear out of me. I'll, I can watch the Meet the Robinsons ending anytime and just be like, yeah, that, yeah, that's the good shit. Like that's that's really good. Like I, I love that movie so much. So I I don't know I, I don't know if that's a hot take or not. I don't even know how well that movie has aged, but I love I, that movie. I, I don't know. Sorry to say, I don't think many people have any takes on it. I think that one's very forgotten, <laughs> unfortunately, amongst them. I've seen. I remember seeing it. I remember it had some fun stuff in it. Cause that's the one with the bowler hat villain guy, right? Yeah, it has, right. I mean, it's it probably in retrospect, it doesn't have an amazing twist, but I remember the twist for nine-year-old Adam 
was absolutely mind-blowing at the time so yeah and i have just very good memories with that movie so i i still love me through Robinson's personally and i can't even remember what else is from that era but that's definitely one of the highlights for me you know one i would say from that era that i don't think it's enough credit especially i think frozen kind of took this movie's thunder a bit is i think tangled is one of the better especially princess ones oh. recently fucking a I absolutely love Tangled. I love Flynn. I think he's such a good character. I love the animation of that movie. I think I think Tangled out of the sort of CGI Disney movies is top 3 without a doubt. Yeah. I I when I did my letterbox ranking today, um it ended up out of 49 movies that I've seen from Disney animated, um it ended up at number 5. Uh it's my favorite CGI. Um Tangled's near perfect for me kind of what we were talking about with hunchback where some of the comedic elements don't work it kind of loosens the story a little bit but like tangled every beat of that movie works to perfection i've seen it like over 20 times um mostly because of my little sister but uh it's one that we can agree on like if she puts it on i'm good with it you know and even though she's getting older like we still watch it together sometimes and it's it has a lovely place in my heart and i i think it's a it's a perfect Disney movie. I, I love it so much. Yeah, and I would say that kind of started like a fun little, not quite renaissance, but at least like the better examples of their CG animation because not too long after that is like Wreck-It Ralph, which I think is pretty great. Um, yeah. And even the uh, Frozen, despite like sort of the over-saturation of it, I think so pretty much works. Or Big Hero 6, I think is fun. And Zootopia, Moana as well. Like some of those are fun. Though I do agree, like stuff like the, the two sequels they did with like the Ralph Breaks the Internet and Frozen 2 were, they're not terrible, but it feels kind of like, yeah, these feel like cash grabs. Really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I thought Ralph 2 was decent. I, I didn't really care for Frozen 2, but I, I've actually enjoyed most of the Disney 2010 movies. Moana to me is, is perfection as far as the CGI. I fucking, something about Moana I love. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is. I don't know if when she's singing the, the fucking How Far I'll Go, that's a fucking banger. <laughs> like top ten Disney goose- songs of all time in my opinion. Oh man, I get goosebumps every time when she's fucking into it. I'm like, oh, th- dude, she's she's got it now, son. Fuck that ocean. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's so dope. Frozen one and two, I, I I can totally sort of like, I'm I'm good without those. I've seen them probably at least thirty times each, and I've heard the song, uh, sung with very bad broken English by my daughter. I don't know how many times I love tangled. I love the first wreck at Ralph. I think it's so funny. The first one, the second one is kind of, eh, it's okay. I love the first one though. I, I think the vocal performances, especially Jack McBrayer as fix it. Felix is so great. But as far as like post two thousands, Disney, man, I, I can't get enough of the princess and the frog. It, to me, it is the best swan song of sort of hand-drawn animation that they possibly could have done. It, it's beautiful. I love the music. I love the character designs. It's got so much great, you know, sort of heart to it, and there's a lot of emotion behind a lot of it. Like, really, I cry because the firefly dies. Like, what the fuck is happening to me? It, it's just, it's so beautiful. And, and And that's the thing. I mean, we're talking about a titan of cinematic industry. I mean, out of 59 sort of canon films that they've done, 
you could maybe say there's 15 to maybe 19 of them that don't add up. But we're talking at least 40 that are like all-time classics. And at least 25% of the bad ones are just like, remember when they did package films in the 40s during World War II? Yeah, right, just like exactly. It's a collection of stupid shorts. Like, that's not, they barely count as movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to say, I just saw Princess and the Frog for the first time over quarantine last year. I don't know why I missed it. Well, it was kind of what uh, Thomas was mentioning, I think, with Chicken Little, I believe, uh, where you were like, you want to want to be found dead, like by a movie, by a Disney movie or something. And like, I that was the same thing with me. Like, I was twelve years old when it came out, so I was just kind of like, oh, I don't need to see a stupid Disney movie. I'm a and big I, boy. I don't, I'm too good for cartoons. <laughs> exactly. And yet, the next month, I went to go see the Squeak Wall. So, like, it didn't add up. <laughs> Hey, look, there are live-action people, and it's not a cartoon. It's cool. It's for big boys. Exactly. I'm like, they rap. Come on. Like, <laughs> yeah, um, Come but, on, but I really loved it. It was really damn good. It, it, it's... It, it, it's it's just it's stunning. The animation's beautiful. I, I, I think it was like one of the first movies I watched, because I recently bought a 4K TV like late last year, and it was one of the first ones I popped in, and oh my god, it was stunning. And the music, the, the characters, the colors... Oh, everything about it um uh i know winnie the pooh was the last hand-drawn one but like that's really the like last classical like hand-drawn uh one that they did and mm-hmm. boy oh boy is it one swan song to have like to leave off on because it's, it's a beautiful beautiful movie yeah even though i would hope they would eventually go back to hand-drawn to some extent maybe not being the dominating force but hopefully at least like do something hand-drawn that's at some nice point picture. Yeah, nice yeah. yeah even a nice mixture, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, I get, we also haven't talked that much about classic Disney. I'm not sure, because I, I think when I was revisiting some of these recently, like, super classic Disney is full of movies either respect or do not respect because they're kind of, like, dated in horrible ways. Um, sure. So yeah. it's, it's that weird mix of, like, the ones I would say that stick are, like, Pinocchio, I would say is my favorite, like, the really old school ones. Um, and then even then, also, I was decrying the package films, but I really love the Ichabod and Mr. Toad Particularly the Sleepy Hollow sequence. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, the Sleepy Hollow sequence is so good. I I've literally watched that every Halloween with my daughter for the last three years. It's so good. It it's I love everything about it. The character design, how how fucking cocky Ichabod is in it, yes. and he like it's so dumb. It's so good though. Yeah, I I can't agree with you more. I I think that's just. What a phenomenal movie. You almost wish it was a full length. I've actually never seen it, so I'm going to add it to my Disney oh, Plus watch crap. list. Yeah, I'll, you don't have to see the other package films. That's that's the <laughs> one to see, pretty much, is <laughs> is, is that one. Um, though I will also say in terms of, like, the early, especially what we were talking about earlier with, like, the Disney restoration, I watched Sleeping Beauty for the first time in a while on, like, the Disney Plus restoration, and that movie is still so gorgeous. And it was, like, shot in 70 millimeter and shit. Or like the equivalent for animation, and it's beautiful to look at. Never a fan of that one, but it's also, you know, I was a little like watching GI Joe, and so I was like, it's about girls, so I never gave it a, gave it a real shot. Um, I'm guessing if I rewatched it, I'd probably fall in love with it. Well, like I said, Sword in the Stone, I really liked as a kid. Now, no, not so much, but I still think Robin Hood is like the undersung hero of that sort of down era of disney where like they weren't really putting out great stuff i still think robin hood holds up immaculately i still think super fun i love the rooster i love the songs i love prince john i love everything about robin hood i think it's damn near perfect 
it's a weird, like, very chill adventure film. It's, uh-huh. it's like, it has, like, almost weird, like, 70s, hey, we're just chilling out, man, it's cool. Like, we're robbing from the rich kid to the poor, it's, it's great, man. <laughs> I have not it's seen that so good. since I was, like, six years old. I need to rewatch it, but... Oh, it's still good, man. When we're talking about classic Disney, we're talking, like, pre-Black Cauldron, right? Like, way, like, way back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're talking... Free Little Mermaid, I think, is the way to go. Yeah. Okay, because that's that's why I was asking because Little Mermaid was like the big one that I grew up with as a kid. Yeah. But pre Little Mermaid, I think my favorite from that era, definitely Fantasia. Like I love Fantasia so. Oh, much. it's a masterpiece. Whatever it is on the hill, the one with the demon. Yes. Nyan Bold Mountain. Remember. Yeah, that's second. Yes. Scared the shit out of me. Yet it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen when I was a kid. Well, being a Florida boy myself and, you know, kind of growing up around the Disney parks, you're kind of forced to be a Fantasia stan. Every time I went to Disney as a kid, like Fantasia down my throat. And I, uh, so eventually I watched it when I was like eight or nine, loved it. And I rewatched it recently when I got Disney Plus and still holds up in Fantasia. I know it's not what we're talking about with the, the pre Little Mermaid era, but Fantasia 2000 as well still holds up really well. They're so. really, they're really good. Particularly the Rhapsody in Blue segment, of Fantasia 2000 yeah. is one of my favorite sort of shorts. Oh, so yeah. good, yeah. I, I really love that. Uh, my my favorite of the Disney Renaissance was, uh, and still to this day, because if, if you watch in HD and uh, you know or 4K, whatever you kids are calling it these days, <laughs> uh, it's just putting on my glasses. Is Beauty and the Beast? I think it it's immaculate looking still. And I love the character design. I love the songs. I love everything about Beauty and the Beast. To me, it it has become my favorite. When I was a kid, it would definitely have been Aladdin. But now as I'm older, it's Beauty and the Beast. I love Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, I, I really, really like Beauty and the Beast a lot. I, it was one, surprisingly, that I had not seen until the remake came out. I don't know how I missed it. I, actually, I'm pretty sure like I saw bits and pieces of it, but I, it was one of those movies as a kid that like i knew the characters i knew like the the dance sequence i knew all the like iconic scenes but i i think i definitely was like playing with my legos during like the character moments you know like i wasn't paying attention fully to it and when i watched it for the first time pre-remake i was like wow this is like you like you you see why it got so much attention like that story that they told at waking sleeping beauty about them showing a rough cut of it to the new york film festival back in the 90s um, and getting a standing ovation, even though half of it was like storyboard, uh, and you that's understand pretty, it. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And by the way, Gaston is one of the best Disney villains ever. I absolutely love Gaston so much. He's great. Yeah, wow. uh, he's I, I, so good. He's so good. It's so stupid. His song is like my favorite thing ever. He eats five dozen eggs in order to get large. <laughs> I was big as a barge. Every last inch of me is covered in hair. It's so fucking dumb. It's so great. Yeah, I, I, uh, that remake was atrocious, but the the original the the original animation is just fantastic. Yeah, I. Well, the one I wanted to bring up next, like probably the last one I like have on my mind is Hercules because I that's one that I literally I, I replayed that too many times like i remember one time my grandma came in the room and she's like are you really watching it again like like can you do you have like 10 other movies like can you pick another one like it got to the point where it annoyed my family but i used to love what year what year did hercules come out guys like 2001 97 yeah 97 okay so i was like 15 when hercules came out right 
I bought, I got, I got a fill toy from like McDonald's or something. I don't know why. I just paid for it. Like I didn't get a Happy Meal, and I still have that fill toy. <laughs> I love Hercules so, so much. It, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic to me. I love the designs of the Titans. I love the designs of Zeus. Everything about I, I, I think Hercules is. Uh, obviously people really like it, but I think it's one that doesn't necessarily get enough credit as a Disney masterpiece. I think it's right up there. I, I would have, I would have thought the same thing, I guess more when I was younger, I still really like Hercules. I recently just watched like a couple weeks ago. Well, cause of James Pro- Woods. Is that, is that what you're saying? Uh, the sad thing is James Woods is like the best part of that movie. And it's a bummer <laughs> cause he's such a piece of shit, but he's so yes. perfect in that movie. He's so perfect. Well, was my hair out? <laughs> I love Hercules so much. I got some Osaka in my throat, huh? Tough crap. Yo, Tough crap. I can go the distance is a fucking banger. Mm-hmm. I literally every part of that movie, like I adore. Like the hero's journey of it all is just yes. so 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 amazing, and uh, the animation and like. I don't know, like being a Greek boy myself, like just the way they adapt mythology in a Disney manner is, I don't know, it's, it's flawless. Yeah, I, I agree. And I love the glow even. It's something simple as that, the glow of the gods and the way it's animated. It's so perfect to me. It looks so good. Well, and particularly the the muses, I think, are so yes. fun. In, oh, and it's oh. weird it's post Howard Ashman dying but you can clearly tell it's very influenced by like little shop horrors and shit like that it has that kind of like flair and fun to it when they come on especially like the I won't say I'm in love song is like the best one of oh, those songs it, incredible yeah. and even like the um uh the gospel ladies at the beginning like uh oh my god like it's it's perfect and one I want to address before because we're obviously we're of course we're running long because we're all Disney dorks Emperor's New Groove I yes. think obviously it was mentioned is so good. It's so good. Eartha Kitt and Patrick Warburton slay me in that movie. I still think they're fucking hilarious and perfect. Yeah. Um, mm. That's another one where I remember seeing it in theaters and I really loved it when I was a kid. I, it's another one that I haven't revisited in a long time, but I think I exhausted my VHS of it so much that it's forever engraved in my memory. I remember every plot beat, every joke, every everything. That's David Spade before. Not a high bar, but true. Very yeah. true. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but at the, yeah, I, I agree with the Emperor's New Groove, especially, that's another one where this documentary is not on Disney+, Plus. but uh, the one, when is, the Sweatbox is the one where it's like, it was a documentary yes. that was filmed about just like the weird production of that one where it was going to be one of these like big, grandiose Disney musicals. And then that completely fell apart. So I'm like, uh, let's make it a buddy comedy. And it surprisingly worked. Yeah. Yeah, that's deeply fascinating. For anyone that doesn't know uh, what Thomas is talking about, look that up. It is so fascinating, that entire story. Yeah, and it was shot by Sting's wife. And Sting's sort of like your weird protagonist for that documentary. was like, I wrote a bunch of songs and then they didn't use any of them. Except like the very end. Well, of course they didn't because they're all... <laughs> but yeah as adam said we are going long so we'll go ahead and get into the close of the show where we want to thank everybody for that feedback also thanks to people like chris oliver who does the intro and outro music for our show listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com thanks to emily scarter for the art for our show and thanks of course to our supporters on patreon patreon.com slash dedvpod 
where for just $1 a month, you all get uh, bonus podcasts that we uh, put out there. And also, you get to pick certain movies and topics we do for the show. And uh, this week, when this episode's going up, there's going to be a poll for... We're going to do another example of uh, video game-inspired films as a topic. And Adam has the good choices, and you get to vote between his two choices. Adam, what are the good choices? The remake of jumanji welcome to the jungle which i think is a fucking underrated movie i think it's totally sweet and funny and hilarious and the 90s horror film starring edward furlong brain scan which is one of those uh you either love it or hate it or don't know much about it because when you told me that was the case i had no idea what the hell you were talking about oh you are in for a treat if that gets chosen by the way patrons choose it um well yeah that'll be very interesting and you all get to choose between those two uh they'll go up uh, this wednesday so make sure to vote for that and of course also we want to thank our guest here adam to adam thank you for coming on the show and uh, why don't you go ahead and promote yourself a bit where can people find you on the internet yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Adam underscore not Sandler. Um, you can follow my podcast, The Zillow Canon, on wherever you listen to pods, Spotify, Apple, wherever. Also, the Aggressively OK podcast, also on there. Same thing, Spotify, Apple, wherever you pod. And uh, yeah, it was a pleasure coming on. I had a blast. So yeah, definitely. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you, sir. And I, I endorse Zillennial Canon. It's a very fun show that you guys do. Thank you. I re- we really appreciate it. It's just bullshit each week, so we we're, we're glad that anyone listens and has fun with it. Same thing here. You just heard it. It's yep, all this yeah. bullshit. <laughs> are professors of bullshit. <laughs> and also, if you haven't already, go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDPod, where you post um, a bunch of our stuff, the questionnaires that you all contribute to, and also uh, you can send emails uh, doublehillbill at gmail.com for maybe longer pieces of feedback. And, uh, you know, what helps us out is if you aren't maybe a patron, maybe just buying some of our merch over at the ESOT Public Store, where, like, you can uh, get a, a mug or a face mask, anything like that, uh, that helps us out, for sure. We would recommend it. Buy our merch! Of course, yes, buy our merch. Of course, yeah. yes. Um, and uh, if you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy, and I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. And you can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore or A-D-A-M. Uh, you know, follow me. I'll, I'll accept your request, and uh, I'll share whatever you want me to share. And also, I want to say to everybody, you know, we were talking about Disney movies today, and the whole idea is that every man can be a hero. And I think that's a very important lesson to take to heart. Uh, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're doing, you mean something to somebody. You are a hero to somebody. And uh, sort of believe that about yourself and believe that about everybody you've met. Everybody's going through something, but everybody is important to somebody else. Uh, just be kind to each other and respect everybody's personal journey. Wow. What an inspirational bit. If you want more inspirational bits, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you, I, I love that, it just went straight into a plug. I'm such a shy street piece of shit. My jaw dropped. dropped. I was like, "Wow, how smooth was that?" Uh, if, you're, if you're listening on the ESO network, when I listen to the other great shows that are on there, or you can also dig into our archives over on the Podbean channel um, for all sorts of stuff and also rate review or just share the show around and give us some more visibility. And, you know, we also want to thank everybody out there because uh, we recently passed 10,000 downloads. That might be small potatoes to a lot of bigger podcasts, but we've always been a small show and we appreciate 
our consistent uh, group of following. And, uh, you know, we, we really appreciate it. If you just listen to either just to this show or, you know, any at least one other episode or something like that, we appreciate even just one listen to the show. Yeah, man, that's a big fucking deal. And, you know, it means the world to me. And as I know, it does to you, Thomas, as well. We are a small show. But I like being sort of on the fringe. I like being something that's discoverable. And I appreciate you for it. And I appreciate our listeners for it. And, and I'm even proud of myself for it that we've never really changed. We've we've been the same since day one. We've kept the same format, the same banter, everything. And uh, the fact that it has even a 100 listeners means the world to us but ten thousand downloads holy shit man i mean on top of the world at the same time we would love to sell out please help us sell out we really want to sell out so much i say something that i feel is meaningful and you're motherfucker you're the consummate salesman you son of a bitch you <laughs> gotta do it uh he bet something really good but by the way go to t public <laughs> <laughs> Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. But Adam, it's time to finally end this episode. And before we end every show, we pick our movies for next week where um, Adam has, uh, in this case, two good choices for the next topic. I have two bad. And we decided, you know, um, this person who passed a few weeks ago, uh, we wanted to do an episode about him and we had to like work some scheduling stuff, but we want to finally do it. Uh, We both are pretty big fans of Cloris Leachman will be our subject for next week and uh, so you have two good ones that you've assigned in between one and ten for adam and i have two bad ones and uh, one person will have to pick it in between one and ten for our good and bad choices and usually when you have a guest like adam two they are the ones that do that so for adam's good choice adam two pick number two one ten. Oh, uh seven that's my lucky number all right well at number eight i have the uh academy award winning uh cloris leachman and the last picture show Oh, wow. Great. I'm, gen- I'm genuinely great. I-, I love that movie. Very it's, great movie. It's a fantastic film. Yeah, it's yes. completely done. Another and one I just saw for the first time over quarantine, and I loved it. It's so, yeah. it's so good. And at number one, I have uh, not only my personal favorite Cloris Leach performance, but also my personal favorite uh, horror-slash-comedy-slash-comedy of all time is uh, Young Frankenstein. Yeah, for sure. I, I think we're saving that for an eventual Mel Brooks episode. We At are. Some point. Yeah. I mean, it fits so perfectly. I mean, she's just phenomenal in the film. Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. But all right. So uh, now for my two bad choices, Adam. Two. Oh, <laughs> number two, one and ten. Um, let's go three. All right. At number two, I had one of the more infamous bombs of all time that I guess not a lot of people have seen because it was a pretty big bomb, and she's oh, one no. of many celebrities in this film. Oh, oh. I have Oogie Loves in the Big Balloon Adventure. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh no! Is that wow. even available anywhere? It's it's available. I I checked streaming sites. I made sure it was available somewhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Oh, I e- wow. Um, <laughs> that what a Blood, Jesus man. Christ. Yeah. What was your other one? Um. Over on the other side, at number seven, I had the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, either way, shit. Well, no, I'd no, much I, rather. <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies would probably just forgettable. We're we're, we're talking Oogie Loves next time. God, God damn. Okay. I love once again another great double feature of the Last Picture Show and the Oogie Loves <laughs> movie. <laughs> Jesus Christ! What a oh my god! That seems like the most chaotic shit I've ever heard of. That's what you get with our show is chaotic shit. <laughs> what have I done? 
<laughs> it's fine. You're you're not to blame here. It's us. We're, we're awful monsters here. We're the true monsters, and you are the man. That's the big. That's the big hunchback twist of this whole thing. <laughs> well, I will definitely be tuning into that episode because I am excited to see how that even that even just transition wise how that could have fires. Yeah, I have that break. There's no question. <laughs> Well, uh, until next time, everybody, this has been a long one, but we appreciate it. And uh, good night and wish upon a star, kids. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to say anything poignant. Tom's going to fuck it up. So good night. <laughs> <laughs>